0: And so as we look at this outline that is defined for us through the divisions that naturally occur in the psalm, the first division that we have, number one, is that the nations rage. The nations are in a rage over the sovereign rule of the Lord. Verse 1 asks the very simple question, why are the nations in an uproar in the people's devising a vain thing. So the question that God is asking is very simply this, why are the people outraged at who I am, of the nation that I have called to myself, and of the rule that I have established him to have? in this world. So when the word nations is used here, it refers to Gentiles. It's often translated in the word Gentiles, but we're not talking about individual people here. We're talking about the Gentile nations as a whole. From the very beginning, it has been this way. The nation of Israel was established under the leadership of Moses as a fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham and then consequently passed on to Isaac And to Jacob. If you remember when God called the nation of Israel to himself to be his chosen people, a unique people for his own possession, they lived under the bondage of slaves as slaves to the nation of Egypt and the time for their departure had come. God was ready to call his people forth, and so Moses approached Pharaoh and requested their disbursement so that they could go out and worship the Lord, and the Pharaoh refused. Over and over and over his heart was Hardened, he would not allow them to leave and to worship him, the God. And the plagues came, and eventually with the death plague, the Israelites were let go from the bondage of Egypt, but Pharaoh changed his mind, and the army pursued them. And this is a picture of exactly what the history of, of Israel's life has been like. They have been the enemy of the Gentile world. From the very, very beginning. And so when God asks the question, Why are the Gentile nations outraged? We can often forget that if you were not a Jew, then you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were not a part of the covenant that God had made with His people, and as Perry mentioned this morning, we were then in the domain of darkness, and as we learned in the book of Ephesians, that God has called all peoples to Himself through Christ and made one nation, one body, one man, neither Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female, nor Greek or barbarian, but only the body of Christ. And so in David's day, if you were not a part of the nation of Israel, then you were a Gentile nation and you were an enemy and you were opposed to the sovereign rule of God. Now, the apostles in the book of Acts asked the very same question as they were dealing with the religious leaders of their day. And this is what we read in the book of Acts in chapter 4 who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, excuse me, the, the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentile rage, Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. And the kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Let me pause for just a second. You see the all caps. When you see the all caps in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it means it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. This is almost word for word what we've just read in the second psalm. And rather than it saying against his anointed, the apostles are declaring that the anointed in the application of the messianic covenant is here his Christ. And so when we read about the anointed and we think about the messianic implications, we always understand that to mean the person of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles are asking the very same question, that was asked in the second psalm, why are the Gentile nations in an outrage? The book of Acts goes on to say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now we know that it was preordained that Jesus was going to go to the cross But these sinful men, these opponents of God, the nations who were an outrage over the sovereign rule of God, were the ones that drove Jesus actually to the cross. We see with the reference here in Acts chapter 4 that there is a very clear implication about Jesus as the Messiah, the Anointed One. This is not just something in Israel's history, but this is something that speaks to God's people for all time as we think about the ministry and the future coming of Jesus Christ. So we have the question, why the outrage? Number two, we see the posture here. The posture here, and it's incorrect on the screen, it didn't get corrected. The posture here is one of resistance. There is resistance to the sovereign rule of God. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. What's interesting is that in the ancient Near East, in the time that that this was written, kings often considered themselves to be like gods. They thought that they often held some kind of a sacred power. And so the idea here is that the kings of the earth and the rulers and the leaders of the earth have gotten together to pool all of their sacred powers together in an attempt to resist the leadership of the Lord They wanted to exact resistance against the God of Israel and against his people and the anointed king of Israel. So here we see that they reject the Davidic king and his rule as God's installed king, and they consider him to be a very direct threat. When we read the phrase, his anointed, it speaks of both David and the Messiah. So at the coronation ceremony for a king, before he was to be installed, the king would have to make a pledge of fidelity and of loyalty to the covenant that God has established with his people. Only after they had pledged allegiance to that covenant would they be crowned and proclaimed as a legitimate ruler. Then they would be anointed with holy oil and then they would become the anointed of the Lord. So there is a concerted effort for these people, these Gentile nations, to resist God and to resist the rule of his anointed. And this means David and the nation of Israel in Israel's history. And it's applied forward, ultimately, to resistance against the messianic rule of Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. In the time of David... How many nations stood shoulder to shoulder with the nation of Israel as true allies who didn't stand as allies over fear of being conquered, but stood as allies because they were willing to make the same pledge of loyalty to the covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel? What nation stood with the nation of Israel in that respect? I don't know of any. They stood because they were subjected to Israel's might and power, and if they weren't, if they weren't going to die and perish, then they would submit themselves to the rule of the nation of Israel. Think about it like this. How many nations today are aligned as allies of the Jewish people based upon the embracement of the God of Israel? There are many, if any. Likewise, how many nations today are aligned with the person of Jesus Christ? How many nations stand with a pledge of loyalty to Him and to His truth? It used to be said of the United States of America that we were a Christian nation. We had a pledge to the Bible as God's Word. We had a pledge to the God who brought people to this land, for the purposes of religious freedom and the worship of the one true God. I don't know that I can say any longer that the nation that we live in has the same pledge of loyalty to the God of Jesus Christ, to His truth, to what He stands for, with an absolute pledge of fidelity. Do we stand with the loyal pledge to Jesus as the God of this country? Do we stand shoulder to shoulder with the truth of Scripture and by virtue of that with the apostles in declaring that this nation stands for God and for God alone? You see, the Gentile nations, of which we are a part of nationally, are outraged at the sovereign rule of God. What's important for us to understand is that we are no longer just citizens of the United States of America, but instead we are citizens of heaven. We are a part of the body of Christ. We are a unique nation of God, neither Jew nor Gentile nor Greek nor barbarian nor male nor female, but we are the children of God. And by virtue of that, you and I are not considered a part of the nation of Israel. We are of the nation of God's own household. So there is this outrage over the sovereign rule of God. There is this resistance to His rule. Number three, there is this plan now, and the plan is rebellion. Verse three reads like this, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the goal is self-rule. The goal is to not be subjected to any other god except for the one that I decide for myself. Nationally, no country wants to be ruled by any god. Every country wants to be sovereign. They want to be independent. They want to be left alone. Now, unless you're of an agricultural background, you probably don't know what chains and fetters are, do you? I didn't know what they were. So when I go, go and read and study what chains and fetters are, chains and fetters refer to the yoke of a cart that is placed around the neck of an animal or of a plow horse that is used for field work. And so if you were going to restrain the animal to do the work that you wanted it to do, you placed a yoke on its neck and you strapped it to the cart with these chains and with these fetters. And what you read here is that the Gentile nations seek to tear their fetters apart and to cast away the cords of the anointed from themselves. We read this in Jeremiah chapter 27 verse 2. Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. You see, the nation of Israel understood that if they were going to be his chosen people, they had to willingly make themselves bondservants of the Lord. There weren't any diesel-powered agricultural equipment in the Old Testament days, everything was done by the animal, and they knew what it meant to be a bond, to be in a bond, and to have a yoke put around your neck. It meant you belonged to the Lord. The nation, the nations that were dominated by the Gentiles, said, "We're not doing that," and even the nation of Israel itself resisted against that, and they wanted to do their own thing. So the right response to the Lord is a willing surrender to Him as King and Lord, symbolized in the willingness to place a yoke around your neck and to not resist the chains and the fetters that kept you strapped to His plans and His purposes. Let me ask you this question as you think about that picture image. Is God trustworthy to be yoked with? Is he trustworthy to have the chains and fetters attached of our lives attached to him in such a way that we do his plan, we serve his purposes, we live our lives for him? We would say that, theoretically, yes. We would all agree that God is worthy and trustworthy and faithful for us to give ourselves to him in that respect. Yet we today still struggle with the same things that the nation of Israel did, and the Gentile nation struggled with as well, and that is submitting to the sovereign rule of God. But here we see that the nations are not only rejecting the Lord as the king, but they are throwing it off. They are taking it off and casting it away as a sign of rebellion, as a sign of disrespect to the Lord. The nations of the earth are by nature opposed to the rule of God and of his anointed king and of his Messiah and the Gentile nations seek to be under self-rule. One cannot submit to God if one does not submit to his anointed and if one does not submit To his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the nations are in a rage. There's resistance. There's a plan of rebellion. Number two, we see that the Lord rules. The scene shifts here from earth into heaven. And there is this sense that this conversation is now taking place in the heavenlies. Not only coming from God to the prophet Nathan. Passed on to perhaps David. But it's also taking place between God and His Son who would eventually come to this world. The response that we see here is spelled out in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God's response to this rage and this resistance and this planned rebellion is very simply a laugh. It's a hearty chuckle, if you will, from the very heart of God as he looks at the posture that takes place amongst the Gentile nations, foolishly thinking that they can cleverly devise a plan that is going to successfully overthrow his sovereign rule in this world. God is not at all troubled by the rebellion and the rejections that take place amongst the Gentile nations. In fact, they can rage all they want because it isn't going to change a thing. The picture here is God laughing and perhaps shaking his head in amusement at the notion that the nations would be able to overthrow his sovereign rule. I thought about it like this. Imagine a group of preschoolers who are gathered together in the corner of their preschool room and they are plotting an attempt to overthrow the superintendent of the school because they don't like the plan. They don't like it that there's not enough snack time and there's not enough recess time and there's too much homework. How ridiculous would it be to see a group of preschoolers plotting an overthrow of the superintendent. And this is how it is in the mind and in the heart of God. You silly and foolish people, do you really think that you can overthrow my sovereign rule in this world? It reinforces this very simple simple truth, that our God is a mighty fortress. He is unmovable, He is unshakable, and we as God people stand safe Behind the mighty fortress that is our God. He rules and he reigns from above and nothing and no one will ever be able to change that. It's very simply this. God laughs in the face of this planned rebellion and this overthrow of a sovereign rule. Number two, we see here the future response that is going to come from God. And make no mistake about it, the future response is going to be action. God isn't just going to sit and laugh and be amused at the plans of those who reject Him. When it says that the Lord will speak, it means the Lord is going to act. Verse 5 reads like this, Then He will speak to them, these nations that are in an outrage, He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. In the appointed time, God will deal with the nations and with the people who have rejected him and rebelled against his rule. When God speaks, he acts. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in the beginning was God, right? And then God began to speak, and through the spoken world, everything that exists came into being. On all the days of creation, God wasn't busy doing anything. He wasn't orchestrating anything. He simply spoke and everything came into being. We read this in Psalm 33, verse 9. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You know, that applies not just to the acts of creation. It stands for everything God has said. When God speaks... It means there's going to be action. They're not veiled threats. It's not a big dog with a lot of bark and no bite. God is sovereign and He is just. And in the appointed time, God is going to speak. Here, God is going to speak to these rebellious nations, these rebellious people. And when He speaks to them, He's going to do so in His anger. And they are going to be terrified by his response the word there that is used is the word fury and it means a burning anger you look at the plagues went and there was an intensification and an escalation in the kind of anger that god put forth towards the rejection of his request through the man moses And eventually the death plague came. And when the death plague came, the Egyptians couldn't usher the people of Israel out any faster than they did. Go, go, take whatever you want. Leave our midst. This God you serve is an angry God and we are terrified by his anger. You know, it should be a very terrifying idea to be subject to the wrath of God. But you know, in our culture, we have relegated God to a God of love, a God of peace, a God of mercy, a God of grace. And we forget the fact, and we diminish the reality that a part of God's attribute is that God is just. When God speaks, He acts. And when He speaks to these rebellious nations, He's going to speak in His anger, and in His fury, they will be terrified. We read in Psalm chapter 21, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will devour them. Hey, we either believe that's true, or we don't. This doesn't ask for our justification, or our explanation, or some kind of an excuse to diminish the righteousness of God and the justness of God and the rightness of His anger being expressed to those who have rejected Him. You know, you and I forget often that Jesus didn't come in to judge the world. Why? Because the world has already been judged. He came in to save the world. And this is the fate of those who reject Him and try to overthrow Him and resist His rule, is that they will suffer at the hands of an angry God who will exact justness on those who have rejected Him. This is the eventual outcome for all who hate the Lord and His anointed. People hate Christians. People hate Christianity. People hate Jesus. Just as they hated the nation of Israel. You know, in the Middle East... There is still such intense hatred towards the nation of Israel that there will never be peace in the Middle East. It will never happen until the nation of Israel is eradicated. And that's not going to happen. Number three, we see the reality here with the Lord rule. And that is very simply this. The king reigns. The king reigns. There's not anything anyone can do about that. Verse 6 says... God saying to the anointed and to his son, and this is the son recounting what he was told, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy Mountain Again, this speaks of both the historical nature of David as the king and all future kings who come as a part of the Davidic covenant, but also of the future rule of the Messiah who will bring about the submission of all the nations. The king has been installed. God has consecrated him and established him as a legitimate ruler of the universe. So here we see in the historical nature, the city of Zion, which reflects to Jerusalem. It is God's holy mountain and that is where the king resides and by virtue of that, it is thought that this is also where God resides because that's where the anointed is. The anointed of God and God were not very clearly separated in the nation of Israel. So figuratively, Zion refers not to the city of Jerusalem but from where God rules And God does not live in a house. And God did not really and truly live in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. It was a representation. Where does God live? God lives in the heavens. And it says very clearly in Isaiah 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? You know, it's interesting to think about it. But the Lord sees this vast earth that we live on as simply His footstool. He doesn't reside in a place. There's not a location. God exists in the heavens. And, the he- and heaven is His throne. God has established His rule. He has installed His anointed who will bring about the submission of the rebelling peoples in God's time. And there is nothing and there is no one Who can change that or who can stop it? The very simple truth is this. The Lord reigns. He reigns from heaven above and that is going to be forever. Number three, we see the Lord's decree. The Lord's decree here is very simply this in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Do you see anything interesting in that terminology? Today you are my son. Or excuse me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So here we go. The declaration is my son rules. So the anointed is speaking of what God has told him that today you are my son And with the the Davidic covenant being established, the anointed has been adopted by God and he has become the son of God. The anointed, being the adopted of God, was a very unique position that existed within the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was, was called the people of God. They were his nation, a people for his possession. But the anointed was called the son of God. And so when it talks about the Son of God, we see very clearly, again, the messianic implication here, that the begotten Son of God, who is who? Who is the one and only begotten of the Father? Well, that's none other than Jesus Christ. We are all adopted as God's children, but there is only one who has been the begotten Son of God. Literally, David is being told by God that you have become my son Because you are now my anointed. Figuratively, Jesus, the one and only begotten by God, is his son and is the true ruler of this world. The king of Israel, whether it be David or Solomon or anyone else who came after him, was a representation of God's rule on this earth. But the the one and only begotten is the one and only true ruler of this world. Verse 7 here. Is alluded to here in both, excuse me, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when they give their account of the heavens being opened up after Jesus' baptism and hearing the word of the Lord, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They understood that at Jesus' baptism with the words they heard from heaven that this was not only the installation of Jesus' ministry, but it was also the installation of the Messianic ministry with the first advent of Jesus Christ exacting and enacting his rule in this world. So there is a declaration here. The declaration is my anointed or my son rules. Number two, there is a privilege in this rulership that is granted to the son. The privilege here is an inheritance. Verse 8 says, ask of me, this is God speaking, God says, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So since David is the king, and has been established by God as the anointed, and is the figurative, excuse me, as the literal ruler of the nation of Israel, God is saying, ask of me, and I will give you these nations for you to conquer and to rule over because they have rejected me and you will bring about their submission to me as the true ruler of this world. The king is invited to ask of God. In this day and age, when you, when the king said to you, what is it that you ask of me? He was basically saying, ask whatever you want. I'm going to do that for you. To get an audience with the king in those days was an unheard of thing. To get an audience with the God of this universe was also an unheard of thing. And so the anointed enjoys a very unique relationship here. As the adopted son, God says, ask of me and I will give to you this inheritance. The father graciously grants to his son the promise of the worldwide rule as his rightful inheritance as the adopted as the anointed of the God Most High. For David, this means a geographical extension. David was to go out into the world, and he was to conquer the enemies of God, and he was to subject them and to subdue them to the rule of God. Now, i want to take a little side note here, and I had this interesting conversation in uh, recent days with someone who's not a part of this church, and here's basically what they said. I don't like the Old Testament. I don't do Old Testament. I don't like the war and I don't like the death. I like the God of love. But what we forget is that David and the Israelites were not out on a ruthless mission just to kill people. They were on a mission to conquer God's enemies. They were given a charge to overthrow the rebellion that existed as his representation on this earth and to subdue the people to his lordship. Now, there's a lot about that that we can't figure out and we can't realistically explain that answers all of our questions. But we have to remember this. God is sovereign and we are not. God has enemies that he is going to deal with in his own way and his own time. He used the nation of Israel as his tools in the eradication of those enemies. And what we always must remember is that because God is just and sovereign, God is always fair in what he does, even when we don't understand, even when we don't think we can adequately explain it. We have to submit our questions and our challenges under the sovereignty of God's rule in our lives and in this world that he has created. So there is this privilege that is given to the anointed and we're talking about that here in just a second we look at this next part. The anointed being both David the literal king and to Jesus the Messiah. Number three, we see the certainty that is coming to the rebellious people and that is destruction. Verse 9 reads, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The rebelling nations who will not willingly submit to the rightful rule of the king, he will eventually destroy. He will force them into submission, or he will destroy them. David was being assured that he would be granted victory as he sought to overthrow the enemies of God who refused to submit to his rule. The rod of iron that is referenced here is no match for a piece of pottery. If you think about that nice vase that you have with those beautiful arrangement of flowers, and you think about going into the back of your car and getting a good old-fashioned tire iron or crowbar, that vase doesn't stand a chance against that crowbar, does it? And that's the exact picture image that is being displayed here. That God wields a rod of iron... And he will smash his enemies like pottery. Think about the receding walls of the Red Sea that encapsulated the Egyptian army and caused their death. It was the deliverance of God's people and bringing about the swift destruction of God's enemies. Think about the walls of Jericho. When the walls imploded upon themselves, it was God conquering his enemies on behalf of his people. You think about Gideon and the army of 300 who overwhelmed an astronomically larger army because God was overthrowing and conquering his enemies. God is going to fight the battle for his people. God is going to fight the battle against his enemies. And if his enemies don't submit, then they will be destroyed. Now, because this has future messianic implications, not only for the time of Israel, but for God's people as a whole. This speaks of the Lord's future victory over all the enemies of God once and for all, when the eventual installation of his rule is established for all eternity. Verses 8 and 9 are repeated by Jesus in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 that we're going to look at. It's also referenced in, I think, 14 and 19 And perhaps even 22 as the book of Revelation talks about the eventual overthrow of God's enemy. Here is a sampling that we see a direct quote out of Psalm 2. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deed until the end, to him I will give authority over all the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father there is a future and certain victory over all of god's enemies for all of eternity that will be enacted by the messiah just the way it was to take place in the time of david you see this is the true hope of god's people the true hope of god's people is very simply this The rule of the Messiah over all the world that he has created will one day come and all the world will be willingly and joyfully subjected to his rule. No more presence of sin, no more power of sin, no more enemies of God. Simply the family of God, the body of Christ Rejoicing and worshiping and celebrating God forever and forever. Now, before we think that this is far too harsh and far too cruel, let's get to the end of the psalm. Number four here, the Lord warns. These closing verses, the Lord warns the rebellious people, these rebellious Gentile nations. Here's what he says. In verse 10, Now therefore, O kings... Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. And so as the Lord warns, the first thing He does is there is a counsel that He extends. The counsel to to these rebellious nations is very simply this. Think carefully about what you're doing. Think carefully about your inability to overthrow my sovereign rule from this world, now you know that kind of is like speaking, preaching to the choir. It's like speaking to deaf ears. It's like teaching, talking to your children about the eventual negative circumstances or consequences that are going to come if they do a certain thing. People are just going to hear what they want to hear. They're going to do what they want to do. But nonetheless, there is this counsel from the Lord to give discernment about what you're going to do. To the kings and the leaders, God issues this warning that in the face of your rebellion, my rule is firmly established. I have spoken. So I am asking you to give serious thought to your situation. Take warning because your rebellion will not be endured forever. What does that sound like to you? You see, to me, that doesn't sound like this harsh God who just wants to destroy people, what it sounds like to me is this God who wants people to think about what they're doing and consider the consequences of their rejection of Him. God's sovereignty is expressed here not only by His definitive rule, but also by His patience and His willingness to allow the rebelling nations to come to their senses and reconsider what it is they're doing. In David's day, the work of God was well established. The neighboring countries feared what might come of them if they did not willingly submit themselves to the rule of Israel. As the earthly king, David would extend grace to the nations. As the messianic king, the same issue, excuse me, the same invitation is issued to people today. The invitation is very simply this serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Stop rebelling. Stop resisting against what you cannot overthrow and serve the Lord. Verse 11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. That word rejoice is often translated with the word serve. So in serving the true king, they will be spared from their certain doom and like all who have been saved from the wrath of God and His just judgment we will rejoice in our salvation. The imitation is to serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, knowing what it is we would have been spared from. You see, this is a gracious God. This is a merciful God who is extending an imitation who is living with patience against these people, who have been nothing but rebellious against His rule. And we come to the last point here. Number three, the choice is ours to worship or perish. See, there's this counsel to think carefully about the posture of our lives. It is this invitation to serve Him. Understanding that there is, a tr- there is a choice here. It is to worship him or to perish because of our rejection of him. Verse 12, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word homage is often translated as the word Kiss. And you think about in the ancient days when you approached the king you would simply bow to your knees you would take his hand and you would give him a kiss. That kiss indicated my willing subjection and submission to your rule. It is my desire to serve you and I choose to submit myself under your rule. To reject the king's rule will invoke his anger. It is a sign of disrespect and it will not be tolerated. If you think about the sign of disrespect in the ancient days, you could be beheaded on the spot if you disrespected the king. In the same sense, the people who will disrespect the Messiah, who reject and resist his rule, will be punished. They Their rejection will not be tolerated. So this rejection will be dealt with and there is an opportunity to get in a right relationship with the king by willingly submitting to his authority. It's very easy for me to see both the literal and the figurative implications of what this is talking about here. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. How blessed are all who take refuge in him to be spared from his wrath to enjoy the provision that he gives to his children, to be able to stand behind the mighty fortress that is our God. All who are in a right relationship with the king rejoice because they enjoy the blessing that comes from being a part of the king's family. The sovereign rule of God. The Lord reigns. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we must remind ourselves the Lord is in control. No matter how bleak the culture gets, we must remind ourselves the Lord is in control. No matter what happens to the finances of our country, the Lord is in control. No matter what happens to our physical bodies, the Lord is in control. You see, when we understand that our lives exist under his sovereign rule, we can rejoice because we are part of the king's family. We can rejoice because we have been blessed with the privilege of the blessings that come from being a part of the king's family. For all of eternity, the people of God, from every tribe and every nation, from every era, are going to... And they are going to worship the king. We just get a sneak preview of what that's going to be like, right? Let's stand together. Let's worship him now.